0: You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager.
1: Yay! Yay! Good evening, everyone. Welcome to All the Things. This is the show where we talk about all things related to God, the Bible, and real life from a historic Christian perspective. I am Monique Dussan. And I
2: am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom.
1: Yes. And I'm excited
2: to be here
1: today. (laughs) it's a silly day yes hey how are you doing
2: um okay I also want to make sure we introduce Bob who's helping us on the show I completely went right by Bob I'm sorry about that sorry about that so he's over there pushing all the buttons for us there he is our camera's working today yay yay he gets
1: much love much love it was an accidental skip over accidental (laughs) people
2: and we are actually on tape today. Today we are filming. It is Valentine's
1: Day. That is right. It but is Valentine's Day. more importantly, it's Monique's birthday. Yay! Woo! It's her birthday. Let's have a world party That's on funny. the day oh. you came to be. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday hey, to yes. you. Little Stevie on the morning
2: Monique was born on Valentine's Day.
1: Isn't yes, I was. Perfect, and we all love you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> and good to you know, be another year older. <laughs> I hope
2: so. You know. Another another trip around the sun. Here we go. <laughs> <There> <laughs> the Lord's got big things planned for you. Yeah, it was a I big hope year. So. Think it of was. how far you've come this year. Yeah, it's been a good year. Yeah,
1: it's been a really good year.
2: Yeah, you're continuing to heal and recover and people can find out a little bit more about your journey out of a uh, missionary mission field induced PTSD. Yeah. But you've come a long way.
1: It's been a long way. It'll yeah. be two years almost yeah. um, in a couple months.
2: Yeah. So yeah, people can look back good. in our archives where we did a whole show about that. Yeah. Talking about your experience, but we are praising the Lord every day for Monique getting better and better. And okay. So
1: can I go back to my question now? Ah. How are you? <laughs>
2: yeah. Good. Um, We should, um, I thought it would be fun if we uh, showed a little highlight from one of our birthday activities. Last night, we went to the Biola Gospel Fest. Yes, it was so good. So I have a little video we're going to play here from the Gospel Fest. They were singing, y'all. You know it's a great choir when they jump. Uh, so good. Now watch this guy. He's going to watch this. (laughs)
1: yes Yes, it was so good i was so glad to be there yeah we had a great time it was it was a fun activity it was
2: sort of an impulsive moment we decided to go down to biola and catch the gospel fest so the gospel choir from biola and this is specific and for one shining moment we were not competitors we were just worshiping the lord together yes it was (laughs) so good but both you and I sang in the Biola Gospel Choir. We did. Like 15 years apart. But yes, but yeah. we did. Yeah, we both. We did. Yeah. It
1: was really good. It was a really good, um, good it's evening. It's the only
2: choir at Biola that you can get into.
1: Don't have to audition. You don't have you to have any just come on. on, on and, in, you you just have to have a willingness in your heart to worship the Lord. That's yes, right. Yes, a desire. Yeah. Yes. And know how to jump. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it helps if you're on people. When I was in Gospel Choir, we had moments of learning how to clap. Some of some of my brothers and sisters struggled with the ministry of the clap. Yep. And they didn't want to clap on a two and a four. You know, they was on that one and three beat or like the one and a half and 3.25. <laughs> was was, you know, you know, hey, yes, I, but no, they didn't want to do it like that. So Miss Cookie Levy, who was our um, our gospel choir director. She'd have us sit down, and we. She had practice, to give some, give some lessons on the clap. Get you so you know how to clap. Can't go and stand up in on stage and be clapping all willy nilly. No, how do you sway? You gotta yeah. sway. Everybody sway together. Let's not. <laughs> and she put her hands up, and then she sway. You gotta yep. sway. No, how yep. to sway? Don't don't sway. Don't bump into me when you sway, people. <laughs> let's let's get this right. When
2: I was in the gospel choir, I don't know there been 80 people. In it, it was a big deal. It was very so, yeah. multiracial, multicultural. It was a very fun memory for me, very positive experience of just all of us diverse backgrounds, all worshiping the Lord together. it's a lot of fun. It was so,
1: it was really good. Yeah. Good time. So
2: we had a good time last night reminiscing and and uh worshiping and yeah, it was it was great. Yeah. So it was really good. And even though we are on tape, we should probably let people know that we're going to be in the live chat box. We'll, um, be yeah, in there. shoot your questions so, over. Yeah, we'll still be there. We'll be there answering.
1: Yes, and fielding. And-, and if you didn't catch last week's show, yeah, hit the replay. Get back and look on YouTube or um, scroll through Facebook. It is there. We are on, it is on Facebook. I know we didn't, we weren't live on Facebook last week, but it is there. Yeah, We had Dr. Neil Shinvey on. He is a theoretical chemist and he is also a critical theory explainer. He did an amazing job explaining um, how critical theory is coming into the STEM fields. What that looks like. We asked the question, is math racist based on an article that came out in the American, like, Mathematics math- Society yeah. Journal about can math be anti-racist? And so if you're familiar with any of these terms, anti-racist mean a critical justice, or not critical justice, I'm sorry, a social justice and a critical race theory word, you know, we're looking at the idea that math is very similar to whiteness and just being accepted, and yeah. um
2: yeah, it, it's... It was a good conversation. There's not a lot out there yet on... Critical theory coming into the STEM fields. So, being able to touch on that, I think was a good discussion. And we had an extra. Oh, STEM fields. Yeah. What is that? It's science, technology,
1: mathematics. I mean, I'm sorry, engineering, engineering, mathematics, and and medicine. medicine. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, it's kind of more of the science and engineering fields. And critical theory is coming in. We kind of made the interview a little bit on the long side. So, that was our only topic Mm -hmm. last week. Um, but it's also available in addition to YouTube, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, all so, the places where you catch yeah. us. It is there. Yes. So, and share it with a friend. Yes. Um, so, yes, there's our podcast graphic. Go look for Theology Mom. That's where you're going to find it. And we're working on getting all the things, its own podcast presence up on yeah. Apple Podcasts. Uh, we have a generous donor that uh, made a way for that to happen. So, and I have a volunteer, I think, recruited to help us. So we're going to yes. try to get that apparatus in place. So we we have that. But for now, you can go search on Theology Mom. All right, let's do the rundown. Okay. So Black History Month continues. Yes, it's February. Yes, we yeah. had Neil Shenvey on last week. Today we have an equally interesting topic. Maybe you can um, give us a little preview of what that is.
1: Well, this looks at it is Christianity truly like a white man's religion? I think that's a hotbed conversation that's going around right now, that Christianity is um, a white man's religion needs to be decolonized. And it's just not true. Um, Some of the biggest named fathers, so to speak, come from Northern Africa. And, you know, they're African and, the the founding of christianity really got much of its start in northern africa and so we have a coptic seminarian yeah. and subdeacon um carillas gergus yeah he's yes. gonna
2: be coming on with us a few minutes here and yeah talking about the role of north africa in the history of christianity i think it's something a lot of protestants are not aware of and yeah. so it's not something we're making up, like you could just go look in history about it, but mm-hmm. just trying to bring it to our awareness as um, a way of sort of combating this cultural narrative that keeps circulating, that Christianity yeah. is a white man's religion or that our theology is all created by white people. I don't know if they think Wayne Grudem invented
1: <laughs> the there theology
2: or what, but yeah, so it's a very common, yeah, common and idea. Yeah, I think
1: also... Um, Another way to put it and I heard you say it is that we could de-americanize yeah our 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 faith our, faith, our experience with faith and go back to the early Christian tradition yeah. and get back to some of the, those ancient faith ideas or at least have an appreciation for yeah.
2: what aspects of our faith are really the result of us being an American mm-hmm. and decoupling that from our faith and and understanding our faith more historically yeah you know, not saying everybody has to convert to orthodoxy. I just find that studying those voices are very helpful to raise my awareness of what beliefs I have. Oh, this is because I'm an American Protestant. Mm -hmm. And this is because this is what Christians have historically believed. So very good things. We're also later in the show going to have a video clip. We're going to have you comment on that was sent to us by a viewer. We love it when our Viewers are helping us produce the show, yes. <laughs> sending us good comment. So it's a clip of a college student saying that there are too many white people in the room. So we'll talk about that.
1: I don't know. I Well, I do know, and I have something to say about it. So <laughs> we'll see what happens.
2: Yeah, there it Okay, All right. Okay, let's check out our discussion from earlier in the week with our friend Carillos Gurgas. It's really good. About the influence of North Africa in the founding of our faith. Let's check it out. Okay, we're excited to talk to a new friend today, Carlos Gerges, and he is a member of a local Coptic Orthodox Church here in Southern California. And Carillos, I just want to say thanks for coming on and, and talking to us today. It's,
0: yes, uh, my thank you so much. Blessing and, It's my great blessing and pleasure. Thanks, ladies.
2: Thank you. And I think this is going to be a really important conversation, Monique, because there is a wide perception I think by American Christians, especially in Protestants, that when unbelievers or non-Christians tell us, you know, that Christ- our religion is a white religion. It's a European religion. It's a European based religion. I think Carillo's is gonna have some important things to say.
1: Yeah, break down that narrative a bit.
2: Yeah. yeah. So talking kind of about the history of our faith, trying to dig in a little deeper into the African roots of our faith um, in North Africa. And so I'm excited to have you here.
1: I think it's important um, February being black history month. um, What I see in a lot of, um, a lot of circles on social media is a lot of African-Americans leaving evangelicalism. I feel like there's a call for like this mass exodus out of evangelicalism. And so And not just evangelicalism, but out of Christianity, out of the church itself to go and, um, seek things like there's a, a huge increase in, um, black women leaving to go and become witches, um, to go back to native religions, Yeah. Yeah. to go back to native religions, um, things that have no historic Christian roots at all. And so I think that it's important to understand that not only, um, you know, is there a place for African-Americans within the church, but it has a deep root in Africa itself.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good setup. And I know that probably being Coptic is going to be new for many of our listeners, Carrillo. So let's just start kind of at the beginning. Tell us a little about yourself and what it means to be a Coptic Christian and why that's meaningful to you.
0: All right, cool. Good way to start. So the Coptic Church, and for me, uh, I was we call cradle Coptic. So I was born in the Coptic Orthodox Church. Uh, I was born in Egypt, where the Coptic Orthodox Church is centered. Uh, its home is in Alexandria, Egypt. Um, it is a faith that is as ancient as Christ himself. Um, we say that Orthodoxy is what the, uh, Christ taught, the apostles preached, and the fathers kept. Uh, so the Coptic Orthodox Church is one of the original... Uh, churches established by the Apostles. It was established by St. Mark the Apostle. Um, he is the same St. Mark as the, uh, the author of the Gospel of St. Mark. Um, he was one of the 72 Apostles that uh, were... We know that there, was, there were 12 disciples of Christ and then 72 others that he appointed, uh, St. Mark being one of them. His home is actually the one where the Last Supper was held. Um, so St. Mark is, is one of the original characters and followers of Christ. Um, he established the Coptic Orthodox Church uh, around the year 60, uh, some people say around 60 to 66 AD, uh, so that's in the first <laughs> in the first 30 years after Christ's uh, resurrection. Uh, Saint Mark basically preached in uh, in uh, Syria, and then he went to North Africa, uh, and he preached in Egypt, in Libya, and in Sudan and Ethiopia, and then he went back up to Egypt, uh, where he was eventually martyred. Um, and so we consider him one of the North African fathers in that sense, because that's where he did the majority of his preaching. Um, he never made it back to Jerusalem. He was martyred in in, in uh, Alexandria. Uh, but he established a church and created the lineage that we have today of the Coptic uh, tradition. Uh, so for me, it's a, it's a historical church. It's a church that finds its roots back in uh, the teachings of Christ and his apostles. Um, and so, you know, Uh, Having studied theology uh, more recently in my life and having become even more established, I've only grown deeper in my faith in the Coptic Church uh, because I find it to be uh, one of the original churches established by Christ and uh, one of the original churches preached by his apostles and uh, kept by the fathers of the church. And so that's what the Coptic Orthodox Orthodox Church means to me.
2: That's a really good kind of crash course on things. And I think that it's important for... And it might be new information for many of our listeners to understand that there were several ancient centers of the early church. There was Jerusalem, which we read about in the book of Acts, and then the gospel goes out. And Alexandria in, in North Africa is one of the, the major centers of early Christianity. And um, I think if I'm remembering right, one of them is, is Rome, Alexandria, Jerusalem. Is it? Antioch and, and, Constant- Antioch and Constantinople.
0: Constantinople.
2: Yes. All right. Yay for for the Protestant girl in the world. In the <laughs> <laughs> in those are the five ancient centers. All right. So um, when when Carillas is talking about the um, you know some of the earliest Christians, the first Christians, we as Protestants may not be aware the, about the role of Alexandria, but it plays a really huge role in our history. So good good to know. Um, Maybe you can give us a couple of points that you think it would help our our many of our Protestant viewers to know about the role of Egypt um, in the foundation of our faith.
0: So one thing I, I, I want to be clear on from the beginning is uh, how much I have you know respect for for uh, Protestant seminarians or Protestant theologians like yourself. Um, it's not it's not something I look down upon in any way just because we're an ancient faith or anything like that. Um, there's definitely a lot of room for understanding between the different branches of Christianity. So let's just put that out there first and then, and then go on with the the Coptic tradition. So um, the ancient church or the original church as it was built was, uh, like I said, established by Christ and he had his disciples and the apostles go out and preach in the uh, what would have been the Near East at the time. So the, the, the centers around them. So that's why you have so many of them um, in Constantinople and Antioch and in uh, Alexandria, these were all relatively close to uh, where Christ originally was preaching in uh, in Jerusalem. So obviously, Jerusalem was was definitely a center by itself, just by nature of where Christ was. And then his disciples went out to the more to the closer regions by. And then Rome would have been technically one of the further ones out, but that's where Saint Peter ended up and Saint Paul as well. There was even Saint Bartholomew who goes to India, um, and so we have an Indian Orthodox Church today because of Saint Bartholomew. Uh, so and Saint. Thomas as well um, so or mainly Saint. Thomas I should say. So these ancient churches were established based on where Christ was and where his apostles were able to go out and from there uh, their students and their disciples were able to go out and preach further um, into uh, the rest of the world. Rome became a center just by virtue of its uh, geopolitical placement. Um, And that's why it's a a big place until today with St. Peter and the Catholic Church. Um, But from these fathers came the original branches of Christianity, um, or I should say really the original branch of Christianity, which was the one universal apostolic, Catholic meaning universal, uh, Orthodox Church. Um, Rome's position in the world became a thing much later on, but the original church was one unified church. And if we have a split second here to kind of go briefly through a quick history uh lesson uh in the year 451 you have a a, a minor split between the different orthodox branches which today god willing is being healed slowly but it's it's coming back together um and then in in the year 1051 or 1054 uh the catholic church is where it, it kind of gets its own uh church if you want to it that way, uh, and it separates itself from the rest of the Orthodox Church. And that's when you really have Orthodox and Catholic. Um, and then much, much later on in the 1500s, uh, you have the Protestant Reformation, which was a, a, uh, an uprising against the Catholic Church itself. Um, and on that note, uh, we always say, uh, as Orthodox, that uh, Martin Luther didn't have to go left against the Catholic Church. He only had to turn right and find the issues that he had were already fixed in the Orthodox Church or didn't exist. Um, you know, things like purgatory or selling land in heaven or, you know, the worship of St. Mary or that these things didn't exist in the Orthodox Church. They so never did. Uh, and so when Martin Luther revolted against the Catholic Church, all he had to do was turn east and he wouldn't have found these problems to exist already. So that's kind of the uh, the notion with the uh, Reformation. Um, I don't know if I addressed the original question. No, stuff that's, here, really,
2: that's really helpful because I think that many people who aren't familiar with the Orthodox Church think that the Orthodox and the Catholics are are just the same thing, but unfortunately, yeah, yeah, but you're, you're raising some good clarifications of kind of the family tree. And I'm going to link in our show notes to a talk that I do on my YouTube channel on this very issue, and it'll ex- break it down into more details. So if people are wondering, like, what are the different <clears throat> branches of Christianity I'll link to this in the show notes, just if people want to dive deeper into these these questions of what Carillos is talking about here.
0: Yeah, if I, I, if, if I had a chance to share my own screen, I would show you a chart that I have that shows the original branch of Christianity. And from it splits off what would have been the Oriental Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox, and then the Catholic Church splits off later, and then the Protestant Reformation later on. And it shows where all these branches kind of split off into their own... Uh, branches but the original linear line that was consistent was this one universal uh, church uh, from it came these different branches and so we and pretty much anybody in the Eastern Orthodox Church as well can claim placement in that original line of the church this is this is Christ's established church and we were all on that line until splits started to happen um, that were all very unfortunate for various reasons
1: I appreciate um the understanding and you speaking into this, that there was, you know, something there, there is a faith to go back to before Protestantism. Um, And, you know, that church, the ancient faith traditions don't have a lot of the same issues that, you know, we see here post-Reformation question. So in this cultural moment, We kind of hear things like decolonize your faith, Christianity is a white man's religion, and things like that. Can you speak a bit into the idea that Christianity is a white man's religion? Is it? Um, Were most of the early Europeans, white Europeans, the ones who formed the church, or is that something that is a myth? Like, how do we see, how should we view the early church, and how should we view that in light of what we see today?
0: So that's an excellent question, Monique, and, and I, I'm happy to address this because despite the reflection of my own skin, I'm actually, uh, I would be considered African-American based on where I'm from. Uh, I was born in Egypt, uh, and if uh, if Christianity was a white man's religion, uh, I certainly would not be uh, a Christian today uh, based on where I'm from. Um, it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, Christianity is originally established in Jerusalem. That's not a, that's not Europe um it moves its way around from jerusalem to uh to alexandria to uh ethiopia to sudan to india to uh antioch and constantinople which are turkey um and so it, it, the, the furthest extent it goes to is rome and that's the first i guess you could say white uh area of christianity that comes about now the reason why we we tend today to think that Um, Christianity is a quote-unquote white man's religion or, or, you know, colonized religion, is because Rome became an extremely powerful center, again, based on its geopolitical position in the world. Uh, You got to keep in mind that Rome was the largest empire to exist post-Christianity or even right as Christianity was developing. And so um, when St. Peter and St. Paul end up in Rome, they establish a church center that becomes as big as the center it's built in. Um, Rome becomes very powerful. Uh, it was both a political and religious uh, city or country or however you want to call it. Um, from there, it starts to have the greatest expansion, and that's why today we have the misinformation or misunderstanding that it, it, Christianity is a white religion. In reality, I have a list of nine church fathers um, that we won't get into the details of every single uh, 10 actually, now that I look at it. Uh, church fathers who were all African-American fathers, African fathers, you shouldn't say American yet, right? But African fathers um, that established the church much, much earlier on. And if you want to even say it more so, none of the apostles would have been white. They would have been Middle Eastern, uh, African. That's that's where they were all going to be from. Um, Everyone from St. Mark and St. Athanasius and St. Cyril and Augustine, Tertullian, all these great names that um, exist in the beginning of the church, they're all from North Africa. And so if, if Christianity was a white religion, um, who do you name that is a great white theologian of the early church? They don't really come around until much, much later on. And it comes through with the Roman church. It comes through with the Protestant Reformation um, because that's who was reforming and that's who was establishing in the early centuries these powerful uh, so-called white centers of the church being Rome. But if we look further back and we look at the original institution of the church, we have centers like Alexandria and Ethiopia and India and Jerusalem and all these places that are not white that established the church. So it's it's a, it's definitely a, a misnotion that we have today that Christianity is white. If if it was, I wouldn't be sitting here with you myself.
1: No, I think that's awesome and super important to understand so that we can you know speak out and speak into what's currently happening in culture and, um, the thought that's going around about Christianity being a white man's religion. And I also think that it can be used to help combat some of the, the, I guess, black flight, so to speak from, you know, the church. Um, but now you talk a lot about the fathers. Can you give us a definition about what is a father and how do we understand the role of the father?
0: That's an excellent question, and it's a question that uh, even as an Orthodox seminarian, we really have to uh, define. So, a father is defined uh, by the time in which they came around, first of all. establishment of the, the original church. And so, not everybody can simply be referred to as a church father. Uh, we have what what is called a golden age of the church, um, which exists in the let's define it by saying from when Constantine the I mean what Constantine what he did was was make Christianity illegal because before Constantine it was an illegal thing to be a Christian so from one Constantine makes Christianity illegal until roughly the late four hundreds this is what we call the golden age of the church you, you could even extend it to the mid500s this is the golden age of the church where a lot of fathers, are now free to start uh, defending Christianity. We call a lot of them the Apostolic Fathers and the Apologetic Fathers. And Apologetic here doesn't mean apologizing or saying sorry. Apologetic means defenders of the church. Uh, because in a defense, in, in an apology, you're defensive. So we call them the, the, the Apologetic Fathers or the defenders of the faith. And so there's, there is this criteria that we meet uh, that is age, that is uh, theology that they taught. So there were people like Tertullian, for example, um, or origin, who are considered early church fathers, but who are not necessarily accepted as saints a- anywhere in the church. They're they're just fathers who had mistakes, but the majority of this teaching of their teaching is acceptable, and we call them fathers, but not saints, because they simply taught um, things that established the church, but had theological errors. And so, the theology of the father, the time in which he came, um, and uh, the so basically it's antiquity and uh, and. Uh, uh, theology. These are things that define an early church father. Now, fathers continue to come around during the church's uh, existence. We, you know, Orthodoxy has been around for 2,000 years, uh, which is as long as you know, when Christ was around. Um, and so fathers have continued to come later on. I can name maybe uh, one or two or three fathers or many more that come after that time frame that I gave you. And they're all considered church fathers based on their theology, but they don't maybe hold the antiquity factor like the ones in the golden age. And so these fathers are defined as people who helped establish the church or defend the church moving forward. That's the definition of the father.
2: And so what's really helpful to understand about the fathers has been helpful to me is that they're critical in kind of preserving the faith once for all delivered to the saints, as it says in the book of Jude, that, that they were critical in establishing the church and preserving faithful doctrine. And I think that that's important for us as Protestants to understand is that like Protestant, like Christianity didn't start with the reformation. It was a, something that was in place long before the reformation came along and that these um, fathers, many of them from North Africa, the Middle East and other places, they were, they were not white people. <laughs> like sometimes I, I hear people say like, well, what we need to do is decolonize the Trinity or we need to decolonize the incarnation. We need to get it out of the white man's religion. And I'm thinking, no, that you don't, you don't understand the origin and foundation of our faith that the fathers are the ones who worked through these things and established the church established these doctrines based on the, the teachings of Christ and the preaching of the apostles. So I think it's a very helpful for a very helpful framework for, for Americans, especially to understand because we often don't teach much about church history um, in our churches. Yeah. So,
1: so can you tell us a few prominent African fathers and what like Absolutely. what contribution did they have to Orthodox Christianity?
0: So some of the fathers that I have for you are gonna be uh, names that you may or may not recognize. Uh, I will start with my our church father, the the one that established the uh, the Coptic Church, being Saint. Mark. Now Saint. Mark is often, or maybe I shouldn't say often, um, sometimes not necessarily credited as an African father just because he was from Jerusalem, um, but where he establishes the church, being in Alexandria, makes him a prominent uh, African father. Uh, St. Mark, like I said, he was one of the 72 apostles who were sent out by Christ, and he goes and he preaches in uh, Alexandria and prominently in Ethiopia and Sudan. And Sudan, by the way, the name itself is an Arabic name, which means black. It's it, this, Sudan is the black. And so... The, the by virtue of the existence of the name of the country, he literally preached and established a church where non-whites existed. Um, St. Athanasius is another father that you may or may not have heard of. I hope you have. He's, he's very, very important. Um, and, and on him, I will kind of uh, deviate for just a split second and mention some of the early church councils that we had that truly established Christianity. There would be no reformation if there was no church to reform, according to the Protestants. And so the church was established in these councils that we had in the very, very early uh, years of the church. So in the year 381, we have the Council of Nicaea, which defends against Arianism. Um, Arianism taught that there was a time when Christ was not, meaning that Christ was created. And so that's a big problem because it splits off the father from the son. St. Athanasius was the defender of the faith of that council. We call him an apostolic and an apologetic father because he defends Christianity in Nicaea. And so he's a very big deal, and guess where he was from? He was not white. He was from Alexandria. Um, Much later on, you have the Council of uh, Nicaea, I'm sorry, the Council of Ephesus, where uh, we defend that Christ is God, really, because um, in that council, you have uh, a bishop named Nestorius who is teaching that St. Mary gave birth to a man who later became God or who later was uh, indwelt by God or the Holy Spirit. But we know that this can't be true because if St. Mary did not give birth to God himself, then God did not join in with the human nature. God did not join us in humanity, and therefore we could not be saved. We are saved by the birth of God in a human form, because when God is united with humanity, we have uh, our salvation in him. He fixes our our, uh, creation by his union with humanity. And so in the Council of Ephesus, you have St. Cyril, who defends against Nestorius, and it was a, you know, it was a very big, messy council that ends up um, creating or, or redefining the Nicene faith, the Nicene creed that we have. Um, if you walk into any ancient church, uh, you have uh, what we say is the creed, which is the definition of faith for these churches. It, it, it goes something like, we believe in one God, God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth, and so it's this long uh, amble that we have that we that we pray and it's established by St. Athanasius and later defended by St. Cyril. One of the most popular fathers that you definitely have heard of, because there's a, a grass named after him and many cities <laughs> named after him, is St. Augustine. Uh, so St. Augustine is often credited as bishop uh, in Rome or in uh, in, uh, in Italy or in Rome. I, I forget the actual city where, he, where he's given uh, credit of being bishop. But St. Augustine is actually from North Africa. As a matter of fact, there's quite a story about St. Augustine um, having a child out of wedlock, and he's he's actually a great saint to follow for anybody who feels like they've done many mistakes in their lives and there's no turning back. Saint Augustine lived a terrible life, um, as far as we define it in uh, in Christian sense. He had a child out of wedlock. He um, was a fornicator. He had a quite a quite a a story behind him, and we call him the son of tears because his mother, Saint Monica, uh, is believed to have cried enough for him for him to be saved that. Christ had mercy on him and brought him back in his in his uh, in his way. So St. Augustine um, is quite a character to study as far as just a person. And then, of course, as a North African father. There is more on the list here as far as Tertullian. Origen is probably the one I'm going to pause on for a second here because... Because,
2: um, yeah, help us say, understand Origen. He's such a controversial father. Yes. He had some what we might call heterodox teachings yes. that didn't seem faithful to... The, the overall teaching of the church. So help us make sense of Origin a bit.
0: So Origen, uh, he can definitely have his own seminary course to be taught in origin. Right, yes. The, the, key, the key thing to remember of Origen is that he was the father of the fathers. Uh, so we call him the teacher of the fathers or the father of the fathers because many of the later on, uh, we call him the Cappadocian fathers that are like um, St. Basil, St. Gregory uh, and others had learned from him, even St. Ephraim and other key characters who are not North African fathers, so we're not focusing on them right now. But they learned from him um, because he was the the dean of the biggest school in the world at that time, which was the uh, theological school in Alexandria. So you hear about the Library of Alexandria. You'll hear about the uh, the theological center and school in Alexandria. um, And Origen was the dean of that school. So many of the fathers learned from him directly. The issue with um, Origen is that he was he was very allegorical in his teachings. Um, and he had a lot of <clears throat> ways of approaching his teachings that lend, lent themselves to being, um, I don't want to say misunderstood, but misused. Um, so where he taught about uh, things like, um, let's see, uh, demon restoration, for example. So he, he had an idea that Satan himself would have another chance to be to be saved the problem with that is Satan fell and Christ or God threw him out I mean there, there was no there was no turning back he was he was an angel and he was thrown out and so when Origen speaks about the devil having or, or Satan having a chance to uh, be saved that concept comes up with some other fathers but we have something in Orthodoxy and in all of the ancient churches uh, called consensus patrum which is to say that what was the consensus of the fathers? And so with a teaching like that from origin, although it it uh, influenced a lot of the early fathers, it does not become the consensus amongst the fathers moving on. A lot of orthodoxy, a lot of early Christianity is based on the consensus of the teachings of the fathers. So we don't take one individual father's teachings and one with it, because then we're relying on an individual person, and that um, can be quite problematic, obviously. We take a consensus of what the fathers have taught, and so when Origen teaches something like demon uh, restoration, we look to what the other fathers have said about it, and obviously um, it's not a concept we accept today anywhere in Christianity, although it was taught by a very prominent Orthodox Church father. And so that's the problem with Origen, is that he spoke allegorically, he had some teachings that became... He has what we call six particular um, theological issues that he taught, or that he did uh, teach that were problematic. and so. Uh, we sidestep them. But when we look at origin as, as a whole body of work, uh, there's a lot to learn from him uh, as far as him being a father. I'm uh, gonna, like I said, there's many. Yeah. yeah. I want to
2: jump in here and just make a quick follow-up comment about origin because <clears throat> in the work that I do in one of my areas of specialty is in a form of evangelicalism called progressive evangelicalism. And I, I don't even know if you've, heard of this it's a it's a kind of offshoot of an offshoot at this point but um it it's important for us to to mention origin really quick because he is so often quoted by these progressive evangelicals as having warrant for some of their what i would call um unorthodox or heterodox views and it's because Protestants don't understand how to interpret the fathers. They don't understand this idea of consensus. And so what Protestants have a tendency to do is, oh, I have a peculiar belief. <clears throat> I have an interpretation of scripture. I'm going to go back in history and find some father who believes this way and then put that up as a, as a buttress for my point of view. Well, that's actually not how the fathers work. You have to have this understanding of, of, I don't just go back and find a father who, who has a certain view. Rather, I look for consensus. I look for what did the church universally teach? This is a very important concept for Protestants to understand because they are going to run into progressive evangelicals who will put up kind of... Random's not the right word, but but certain sayings of origin or other fathers, but they weren't the consensus view, and so we we need this is a very important thing. I want to make sure that our listeners understand, and it doesn't doesn't pass them by.
0: And and actually, there's a there's a point to made on that note about Saint Augustine, for example, uh, because you have uh, today the uh, branch of Protestantism. Um, Calvinists I think is what it is uh, who rely heavily on Augustine's teachings about uh, predestination um, unfortunately this is this is exactly that notion that you just described if you rely on Augustine specifically for predestination you'll find a lot of his writings and really uh, a strong core in his writing that speaks about predestination and the predestination of souls and where everybody's going in the end no matter what they do um, this is problematic again because and I and I I don't want to sit here and attack Calvinists or anything like that or defend Armenianism versus Calvinism. Any of this is not the point of my conversation. But if you were to rely specifically on Augustine alone, you're going to run into this issue of him teaching this. And to the point of consensus, he's really one of the very, very few, if not the only one that I know personally who speaks about it greatly. And on top of that, and this is part of the the one of the most missed things that Calvinists had is that Augustine is the only father that I know of who writes at the end of his life uh, a retraction of some of his writings. One of his very last, he writes something like 70-something books or something, but at the very end of his life he writes um, this this book of retractions where he retracts, I'm not going say a lot, but a good chunk of his teachings that he later discovers were not accurate. One of them is predestination. He retracts a lot of the things that he says are predestination. But because certain branches of Reformation, like Calvinists, have chosen to take on, like you said, a very particular teaching in one particular father, you have this issue of sort of picking and choosing who you want to listen to or who you want to believe.
2: That's a good way of saying it, yeah.
0: Yeah, (laughs) consensus is a very, very important thing, because um, if we were to rely strictly on St. Anthony's writings, which are almost flawless, um, St. Cyril's writings, or any... We still have problems because there are minor points here or there um, that can become problematic on their own. And so when we look at uh, the concept of theosis, for example, the union of of God with man, um, if you were to rely specifically on St. Athanasius alone, um, you're going to have maybe a a bit of an overdefined meaning for that word. But if you take the consensus, then it has a much more... um, Accurate understanding, uh, because if you take San Francisco alone, you may believe that men become gods and that's Mormonism. Um, and so that's an extreme understanding of that definition. Whereas if you take it with a consensus of the other fathers who others have spoken about it, you have a more um, mellowed out or more prominent or more. What's the right word? Um, more accurate understanding of the term instead of saying that we straight up become gods like Mormons believe. And so that's that's what I'm saying with these fathers. If you, if you take, you know in the Bible itself, ladies, if you take, if you take a single verse or a single line from the Bible, you can turn Christianity upside down. Right. Mm -hmm. So you have to take the whole, the whole thing as a whole. Otherwise you're creating a whole new religion really, in my opinion. So that's the consensus part of this.
1: That's so good. And so helpful. Um, like I'm just sitting here learning as well. Um, (laughs) now you've mentioned a bunch of fathers. Um, who's your
0: favorite? Who's my favorite? That's a great question. Well, my name is Cyrilus, and uh, Saint Cyril—the the name Cyril is Kirillus, Uh So I have a little bit of a, a bias towards Saint Cyril. Um, a lot of my writings in my seminary uh, program focused on some of, uh, or a lot of Saint Cyril's writings. And so, if I had to pick one, I'm going to pick Saint Cyril. Uh, he is a great defender of the faith. He defends. Uh, the virginity of St. Mary. He defends uh, the, create the the birth of God from uh, St. Mary. Um, He's tremendous in defending orthodoxy at a very turbulent time. And we owe so much to him for establishing or helping defend the early church. Between him and St. Athanasius, um, you simply can't go wrong uh, as far as their teachings. They're Like I said, they're practically flawless on their own, um, very extensive, and we have lots and lots of them. But outside of those two, uh a non-african father would be my favorite is saint uh ephraim the syrian because he's very poetic and so if you want to get out of the very dry theological writings of some of these fathers you can go to somebody like saint ephraim the syrian who writes uh, poetry basically Mm. he writes theology and poetry and so if you want to feel um a sense of um inner reflection or sense of um uh, union with God in a, in, a, in, a, in a different or in a slightly different way of approach and in a poetic way, he writes very, very beautiful poetic uh, prayers that um, on their own are are filled with meaning, yet are very um, theologically sound and uh, just beautiful to, to to read and to, you know, to memorize. So, St. Ephraim, the Syrian, and then, of course, as far as theology, St. athanasius and St. Cyril are my favorites.
2: That's so Uh good. And I I think what's coming to me is just how rich our faith is. And I want to encourage our listeners. We're going to round out in just a few minutes here with some resources and next steps for people to dig deeper. I know that people are going to be intrigued by many of the things that you're sharing. Um, What do you think, Carolos, is the lasting impact of the North African church on the rest of Christianity? Like what do you, if you were to, sit down with a Protestant over coffee, maybe uh, talk to us about what you would say to, you know, like, hey, here's here's what you need to know about the North African church. Here's why this is important to, to learn about for your faith. Here's the lasting impact.
0: So this transitions very well into uh, two other fathers that I wanted to speak about. They're also North, North African fathers. Um, one of the most defining uh Impacts One of the most lasting impacts that North African fathers had on the, on the church, both early and today, is the establishment of monasticism. I know that monasticism doesn't exist in Protestantism, Protestantism, Protestantism excuse my, my tongue there, um, but monasticism plays a very big role in the early church. And two, two prominent fathers who established monasticism are St. Anthony and St. Um, St. Anthony, we call him the father of monasticism. And Saint Pachomius is the father of established uh, monasticism. He created the system for monasticism, and so the reason I want to highlight monasticism even for just a second is because it has a great impact on the development of the early church, whether in North Africa or in Europe. Um, everything from Franciscan fathers to the rest of the monastics in the Catholic Church, um, and all of, uh, of monasticism in the early Eastern churches. Out of them come many uh, popes and patriarchs and other um, saints that we that we. See, It had a lasting impact, both positive and negative, in a sense, because um, if you look at the Catholic Church and the the, uh, patriarchs that they brought out that made a mess of things, they also came out of monasticism. But it had a great positive impact because monasticism is what I like to call silent Christianity, um, the silent faithful. They're the ones who pray for the church outside of the world. They live in the deserts. They live in caves. They live away from the rest of humanity. In in a way that allows them to glo- to be so much closer to God, just because of where they are um, sitting and establishing themselves, they have the spiritual freedom to be so close to God. And so we call them the silent Christians who pray for the establishment and of, of the church. And so monasticism has a has had a tremendous lasting impact on the mm-hmm. church as a whole, and it starts in North Africa with people like Saint Anthony and Saint Macarius. But as far as Outside of monasticism, um, like I said, there would be no reformation if there was no church to reform. And so if you look to the North African fathers and the early church, this was Christianity. This is Christianity today. I think a lot of the times uh, modern Protestantism um, tends to overlook the existence of the church prior to the reformation because they think everything that was reformed was just terrible. But like I said earlier in the program that um, Martin Luther didn't have to revolt against the Catholic Church if he simply turns to the East and finds that a lot of the issues that he uh, was fighting against didn't exist in the East. We've never had the issue of purgatory in our church. We've never had the issue of the worship of St. Mary in our church. We've never had the issue of selling land in heaven in our church. I don't know what the actual concept is called. But we've never had these issues that he revolts against. His 99 Theses are the things that he wrote. So many of them were not problems in the East. Uh, I don't, I mean, I can't speak for Martin Luther, obviously. I, I, I'm not as well studied about him as as maybe some Protestant theologians, but he, he really could have turned Eastward and found his issues resolved. Um, unfortunately, obviously, history tells us that he didn't, um, and this is where Reformation comes in. So what I'd like to take this moment to remind my Protestant brothers and sisters is that um, while, I have tremendous respect for their faith. And, and honestly, on that point, I will say, um, the Protestant church has done a tremendous job in its ability to serve the rest of the world. Uh, the service in the Protestant church in Protestantism is is, is wonderful. Um, ministries are a wonderful concept in the, in, the, in the Protestant church that I respect very much. And so this is all great things as far as serving other people and, and humanity in general. I think it's done a wonderful job. But as far as theology and as far as faith and doctrine, I would invite them to um, search a little deeper, look a little more further back, uh, beyond just the Catholic Church, which I know um, has had a rocky history and a rocky present, uh, for that matter. um, And to simply look towards the East, uh, as we say in our liturgy service, uh, look towards the East and see what we have, because we haven't changed. We, We, and I say this truly and genuinely and faithfully, Uh, and confidently that we really have not changed. Orthodoxy is what Christ taught, the apostles preached, and the fathers kept. And we keep what the fathers have kept. Uh, The seminary I attended uh, is St. Athanasius and St. Cyril Theological School. These are the fathers that we just discussed. They're North African fathers. They are the ones who who kept the faith that the apostles gave them, that Christ taught them. And that exists until today. The concepts we learn in our seminary today and our churches are liturgical services are verbatim things that Christ said to his apostles and disciples. And so, you know, I know a lot of churches like to say, "Oh, you know, we are the true Christians. We follow the true Christ," and we, and that's wonderful. But show me your 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 history. Uh, I, I was I was at Starbucks one time with my friend. Uh, you know him. I won't name him. And uh, we had a young lady approach us, and she was trying to uh, tell us about her church. And so he asked her, uh, "When was your church established?" And she said, "1975." And he said, oh, that's nice. She goes, when was your church established? He goes, 66. She goes, oh, 1966. He goes, no, 66. That's it. That's when the church was established for us. It is that old. Um, And so old is not bad in this case. Old is, um, if you've kept it, it's good. It's what Christ taught. Um, And that's where we stand today. And I invite them all um, to take a chance to uh, look up the Coptic Orthodox Church or look up any of the Eastern Orthodox Churches visit a parish. Coptic Orthodox parishes may not be as prevalent, but visit a Greek Orthodox Church, visit a Russian Orthodox Church, visit, uh, if you wanna stick to North African particularly, visit an Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Um, a lot of these churches have English parishes. Um, they're very, very welcoming. I know locally in Southern California, we have plenty. Um, and we've opened our doors greatly to, to people who have questions. There are Facebook groups that I can recommend. There are websites I can recommend. Um, you know, I'll leave my email out for you if you'd like. They can email me and I can direct them to the right, the right place. So I invite them to look to the east, and they'll find a lot of the questions that they had, a lot of the issues that they fear with the Catholic Church simply do not exist in the east.
2: And I think that's a good word because, like Monique said, there's so many blacks, African Americans, who are exiting the church because they. They think that it's too co- colonial, too colonized. But I wanted to say that if it wasn't for the fathers, if it wasn't for the North African church, um, you know, the things like the Trinity and the incarnation and these foundational aspects of our faith that every Christian apologist uses in the circles that I'm in, um, we all are resting on the shoulders of giants of these fathers and um, Our faith is, is ancient and the more connected we can get to understanding our faith from an ancient point of view, um, the less American it will be. And uh, so.
0: Krista, if, if, if you don't mind, I, it's just a good point you made just yesterday, uh, was we have daily commemorations in the church where we remember certain events or certain people. And yesterday was the commemoration of the council of Constantinople, um, which was the second of the, the three ecumenical councils we recognize in the, in the Catholic Church. And in that council, since you mentioned the Trinity and, and, and the Holy Spirit, if it wasn't for that council, there would be no Holy Spirit understanding today. Literally, that's how important this council was. Uh, and it's one of the lesser known ones for that matter. Um, it is a council where the fathers defended the existence of the Holy Spirit and its importance in the Trinity. If it wasn't for these fathers at that council, somebody named Macedonius would have been successful in teaching that the Holy Spirit is not an equal partner in the Trinity. That's a problem. That would, that would create a very different Christianity today. At the beginning of the show when you prayed, and we prayed uh, invoking the Holy Spirit upon us for, during this discussion, who, what is the Holy Spirit? If it wasn't for these fathers at that council, what is the Holy Spirit? Okay, It's a very convoluted concept if you don't have it defined by the fathers in the early church. And so I think we owe a lot of gratitude to these early giants, like you call them, um, for their establishing of so, so seemingly uh, basic concepts today, like the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the very prayer of our Father who art in heaven. This is, these are things that were developed by these fathers in these councils, and we owe them a great, tremendous debt. And a big chunk of them were North African fathers. Very
1: That's good. awesome. Now, as we um close out, what next steps can someone interested in ancient faith traditions do to learn more? I know you said visit a parish. Um, are there books? what like what can we do to be to start digging in more to understanding um Christianity before the Reformation?
0: So, I can recommend uh, definitely the best thing is to visit a parish and talk to a priest, and if you um, go to any of these orthodoxy uh, websites. There's so many of them. I, I, I'm not going to promote one or the other, but um, you know OrthodoxChurch.net, for example, is one um, Coptic Orthodox diocese websites or whatever. They'll they'll direct you if you simply search for Los Angeles uh, Coptic Orthodox Diocese of Los Angeles. We have a tremendous website that directs you to our parishes. But even if you didn't want to go to a Coptic church in particular, I'm happy to present you know other. Orthodox churches, even the ones that we are not technically in communion with, but they are Orthodox churches, the Eastern Orthodox churches. Tremendous respect for them as well. So you search for the Russian church, you search for the Greek church. Those two I name in particular because they are more prevalent in, in English parishes. They've, they've been in the West for a lot longer. Um, so if you don't want to come to maybe an overly cult- culturally heavy um, church, those churches are just, just fine as well to, to get a basic introduction to orthodoxy. But if you find your way to a Coptic Orthodox parish, um, all of our priests can speak to orthodoxy. And if, if not a parish, um, there's a, book, a great book called The Orthodox Way, um, and uh, uh, there's another book called Orthodoxy and Heterodoxy. Uh, these are very basic books about the orthodox faith that you can start with. Um, there are some authors I can recommend, uh, that, like Alexander Schmemann or um, Ka- Metropolitan Callisto Ware, who writes the Orthodox way. Um, their books are basic and foundational and um, easy to understand. Uh, you can definitely, don't trust everything you find online, certainly. Uh, that's why I always say go to a parish or speak to an Orthodox seminarian or, uh, you know, um, Find your way to a deacon or a a Sunday school teacher in the the Orthodox Church. And at the very least, they will help direct you. Um, There's also a a nice Facebook group called Ask About the Coptic Orthodox Church of Alexandria. Um, I'm one of the admins on that group, and you can find your way to it. and Get in, answer the questions. And in there, you can ask any question you want about the Coptic Orthodox Church. All the admins in the group are either seminarians or priests or highly educated people in the church um, that will help direct you in that sense. So these are just sort of footsteps in the door to not necessarily converting. I'm not here to to convert anyone, uh, but I'm here to just give you the opportunity to um, look further into it, um, make yourself a little bit more well-rounded in Christianity as a whole. And these are good places to start.
2: That's good. And, and again, I want to emphasize like, you know, the idea and all of this isn't conversion necessarily. I mean, that's a conversation for you and the Holy spirit to be in, but to um, really help educate us in the, the ancient uh, foundations of our faith. Like that is an important conversation to be in. In fact, I picked out a few books to recommend as well. Uh, One is from a couple of them for, are from Tom Oden, who is a Methodist, uh, scholar, uh, that I like very much. Uh, his, his way of doing theology has been very influential in my own. And, um, his book, how Africa shaped the Christian mind is a very good, uh, introduction into the themes that we've been talking about today that will be accessible for people. Um, and really trying to go into some more details and some of the fathers and some of the concepts we've been talking about. There's another Odin book that I want to recommend uh, related to the Coptic church, the African memory of Mark, and really looking in particular at the Mark tradition of the church and getting a fuller picture of what's happening there. I have one more book by Craig uh, Craig Keener, a co-authored a book some years ago called Black Man's Religion, Can Christianity Be Afrocentric? And uh, Craig Keener is a wonderful New Testament scholar, probably the most preeminent Protestant New Testament scholar right now. Uh, He's an acquaintance of mine, and he really takes a very similar approach than what we've been talking about on the show today and addressing this question very directly, Monique, about um, the African exodus. And Dr. Keener is white, um, but... He has extensive experience in African-American churches and his his wife is from Africa and um, he has a really good balanced and biblical point of view. So those are some additional resources also, I want to recommend there's, to people. There's,
0: there's one more book I, I just remembered right now. If you had any interest in what I was saying about the fathers at all, um, there's a, a great simple book. Uh, called The Father of the Church, an Introduction to the First Christian Teachers by uh, Mike Ecolina. Um And it's a very simple book. We used it in our seminary class for patristics. And it's uh, what I like about it is it, it, it breaks down father by father and just gives maybe a page or two about each father. They're not all necessarily African fathers or anything, but uh, if you had any interest in just the fathers uh, Micah Colina's book, the Fathers of the church An introduction to the first Christian teachers, um, is a tremendous simple book that you can, um, just look at for a better understanding of the fathers themselves.
2: Very good. Wow. Well,
1: thank you, Carlos. Yes. Thank you so much.
0: It was a really, really a surprising, uh, pleasure for me. And I, I'm very happy to, to have done it. And I'm at your service anytime you need me.
1: Oh. my gosh. It's been so helpful and so informative. Thank you so much. It, thank you so much. Okay. We're
2: back. That was a great interview. I really enjoyed yeah. it.
1: I really appreciate his his wisdom and insight into the North African church. Yeah. And,
2: Maybe we'll have yeah. Carolos on again sometime, talk about some other topics that, yeah. you know, related to North African influence. I, I would, there's several questions I would kind of like to follow up with. So, all right, let's move on to the next thing. We had a viewer, one of our friends from Alaska. Yes. And we do have viewers in Alaska.
1: Yes. <laughs> and they are all
2: wonderful. Yes. Uh, sent you a video clip earlier in the week um that we wanted to comment on so maybe we'll just watch the clip
1: yeah she sent the she sent the video and she sent it with such an encouraging note I was so thankful because she she sent the clip and was like watch this and this is why your voice is so needed in this space and she just thanked me for using my voice and I was like wow thank you so much now the video itself is crazy but I appreciate the the kind note um. There's, yeah. So let's crazy. just watch let's the watch the, clip.
2: watch the clip. Then we'll come back and hear Monique's comments about
1: it. Public service announcement. Excuse me. If y'all didn't know, this is the MSC, and frankly, there's just too many white people in here, and this is a space for people of color. So just be really cognizant of the space that you're taking up, because it does make some of us POCs. I'm comfortable when we see too many white people in here. It's only been open for four days. And frankly, there's the whole university for a lot of y'all to be at. And there's very few spaces for us. So keep that in mind. Thank you. Okay. So let's so, give some history. This yeah. is the University of Virginia. And apparently they opened up a new multicultural center. And that's what MSC is, Multicultural multicultural Student student Center. center. Okay, got it. That's from the best of my, my knowledge, that's that's what MSC would stand for. And so they've opened up this new space on campus. And I guess the white people have come in and enjoyed this space. It's only been open for four days. And so she I don't know if any other students of color feel this way, but she definitely has made her voice known that She feels like there's too many white people and it's only been open four days. Why y'all in my space? And so the video was sent to me and I was like, wow, you know, Um, initially I had, I think some, some more, he ain't through with me yet emotions. Like I had like that rile up in my spirit, (laughs) like what in the world? Why didn't anybody say anything? And, you know, I am a work in progress. I I can tend to be a bit more vocal. Um, But as I was reflecting on my own thoughts about this video and things like that, the question still did come of, well, who was she talking to? Who are the white students in the room? Um, Are people just now sitting around and watching her say this? Are there? Do they have any emotions? Do they feel like because of the way cultures shifted, they can't speak up? Are they afraid? The white people. Yeah. Yeah. Was there one white student who may have wanted to say something, but did not And why not? Um, And what I what I don't want this time to be right now is like some big call to arms. But what I do want to say is that the white voice is needed to also combat this, this narrative that, you know, you can just be talked to any kind of way you you shouldn't occupy space and and the idea that you are just occupying space her her words were like you know be cognizant of the space that you're taking up well who says that i'm just taking up space and this is the problem with social justice and critical race theory is that oppressors and oppressed somebody's just taking up space someone is not valued someone does not have dignity and that is anti the christian framework as as a child of god you're not just taking up space but you have dignity value and worth you have a place
2: so let me kind of offer a few additional thoughts to that because this young gal i there's a part of me that really wants to empathize with where she's at that that she feels like well this is a special space for people of color why are there so many white people? But then in it here? would be
1: named the people of color space, not the multicultural student center. And so when I think of multicultural, yes, I tend to think of ethnic, but when we break it down, multicultural is an inclusive space. So technically that includes all, cultures. all the cultures.
2: I see what you're saying.
1: Not okay. just the ethnic cultures. It's all the cultures. It's multi. There should be space and room for everyone at the table. So
2: I I think that's a really important point because our culture, though, is programming this young gal to think a certain way about white people. Like the culture is telling her white people are oppressive and they have all these other spaces. It's
1: the culture. It's academics. Yeah. And
2: yeah, I'm an oppressed person. This is my space. I finally have
1: a space. Yeah.
2: But now she's kind of putting herself, catapulting herself into the role of oppressor, telling the white people, you're just be cognizant of the space you're taking up. mm -hmm. Which I think you're bringing up a very important point that that kind of demeans the dignity of the white people in the space.
1: Yes. And some people will say, well, this has been the narrative for, you know. Years and years and years and decades and, um you know, all space has traditionally been white space and people of color haven't had a voice. And even if that is true, and while I can say yes and affirm much of that narrative, we don't repay evil for evil. We don't say just because people of color aren't re- represented in textbooks or just because people of color haven't had um as many opportunities as whites on TV or in movies that now we shun all whites and say, you have to now go sit in the corner because it's only my time to shine. And you're taking up space. Yes. We can both shine together. The shine is bright. We can both do it. And so I don't know when I, when I think about this, I just wonder like, Hmm. If, if this was a black person, so let's say you are the one or a white person was, has now taken her space and I am the one on the receiving end. What would that have manifested into?
2: So if the if the gal, instead of being black, had was been white, white and told and us saying, there's black too many, people, there's too people many, of color, there's too many of you. We don't feel comfortable. Yes.
1: Now, some will say, well, that has been the story, especially in the South for a very long time, sure. that, that you know, people would say, you can't sit here. You can't come through this door. We don't have any space for you. Okay, I understand that. And if that were to happen today, oh, everybody would have been in an uproar. I'd have been the first one. Who you talking to? Who you talking to? <laughs> and so a part of me was really hoping that a white person would have jumped up and been like, hey, Felicia who you talking to and the lord had to convict my heart and say but that's not the way of our rabbi that's that's not the way that he does things he didn't go out leading the protests and doing all of these things however he did when it was appropriate speak into certain things. And so that's the encouragement. It's like, no, you may not as a white person, you may not choose to speak out against everything that is currently coming at you in culture, but it, is important to understand that your voice does have a place within this cur- cultural moment and it's needed and it's imperative if we're going to shift the narrative i've had three conversations four conversations with people who have told me that in the last are, week probably in the last Two i would weeks. say 10 days yeah. where, where people have told me i'm so glad that you're speaking into this because you're a woman of color i can't use my voice to do that and i'm like but why not and these people were white people. These people were white. Why can't you use your voice? In the 60s and in the civil rights movement, it took us using our voice. It took Black people using their voice to say, not today, Satan. I'm not going to move today.
2: Well, let me unpack that a little bit more because I think there's a couple of points that I want to make sure you're are, are not too subtle, that people miss them. Yes. One is that... There is certain amount of social conditioning that happens for white people that there is this secret part of our our life or our mind where we might be racist and we haven't recognized it yet. So when a person of color comes along and says that we're racist, it's almost like that's our worst fear being manifest, you know, and and we don't want to talk about it. This is why we don't want to talk about race is because... It makes us nervous, and we feel there's a social conditioning that happens that says this is something that's not appropriate for us to discuss or learn about or ask questions about. Now, I think you make a very provocative point, and your point is, why not? Why can't you use your voice? Why can't you speak up? Why can't you just know that you're not a racist and just say a word on on? on your own behalf because likewise there was social condition conditioning that happened in the black community that you should be subservient mm-hmm. and there had been that narrative in people's minds for decades centuries of being less than and one day you know just as an iconic moment not saying it was the only moment or was the only person i'm sure it wasn't but that iconic moment of Rosa Parks not moving to the back of the bus. She said, not today, Satan. Not today. Y'all gonna have to take me down. And they couldn't, if black people had waited for all the white allies to come together on their behalf and speak out for them, it wouldn't have, things wouldn't have changed Mm -hmm. so quickly. And what your point is that, yes, black people can speak out on behalf of white people, but white people also need to speak out on their own behalf and get past the social conditioning that it's inappropriate for a white person to talk about race. Is that kind of what you're
1: saying? That it's inappropriate to talk about race or that it's okay for somebody to tell you, you need to take several seats and don't occupy my space. Um, What? Like if, (laughs) I, I guess for me, because my personality, and I know y'all don't know me at home and things like that, but my personality tends to be more, let me stand up. Let me use my voice. Let me say what I have to say. And so if that isn't your normal nature, I guess that could be a bit of a struggle, but just the encouragement of you you don't just have to take anything off people. Like, just because you give me something, don't mean I gotta take it. You yeah. give me this word of, you need to watch out, be cognizant of the space that you're taking up. Uh, excuse me. Then my, then my tuition not go to pay this for this too. You know, and and that's that's more that that part where y'all should pray for my my spirit. But but, it, but in the second serious, point, yeah, the second point is the biblical point, which. I think is important that we, it's not a call to arms it is an encouragement to understand that your voice is worthwhile in this moment that talking about race is important you might say I don't want to talk about race because I'm racist maybe you are like okay so let's talk about let's have that conversation and is it really racism or is it bias that everyone holds you know, like we won't know until we put the ugly things on the table. And if there is, the, the, the word says, check your heart, you know? So if there is things that you find in your heart, then repent to Holy Spirit. Like repent of that. Turn and keep going. But if we can't ever talk, we can about never it, talk about it, you never how know. How do we shine
2: the light of truth on anything if we can't yes. have a, a, even just a catastrophically horrible conversation and still forgive each other and still try to Figure out, all right, let's try to move forward together. Like we have to be willing to completely have a catastrophic conversation about race and still be brothers and sisters
1: in the Lord. And understand that maybe, for me, maybe I deal with racism. Maybe I have a problem in my thought life against certain people. And if that is the case, or maybe I, when I drive down the street, don't want to let certain people over because I have a certain bias against the way certain people drive and do things. I need to check my heart. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not a thing of like, Oh my gosh, because I do this no one else does. No, we are all sinners. We are all fallen. We, we are all part of the fall. We all suffer We all with struggle pride. with prejudice. Yes. We
2: all struggle with race bias. We all struggle. We
1: have these things. And if anyone yeah. says, oh, never me, I'll be the first one to say, you, you better go somewhere <laughs> and go check yourself because that's not true. But no one wants to ever say this isn't true. And yet... There is hope, and yet there is restoration, and yet there is forgiveness, and yet Jesus is still pursuing you.
2: I think that the the other thing that we need to keep in mind here is sort of the theological foundation that you're bringing up that to speak up on our own behalf is because we have value, dignity, and worth. We're not just
1: space. Yes, we're not just occupying this is what space. I'm saying that even if, even if. I am going to use me. I struggle with bias and prejudice. I still have dignity, value, and worth because I'm created in his image. There's still the hope of transformation for me because I am created in his image. because I am dearly loved. And so that's why I agree with you. Yes, let's have these ugly conversations. Let's put this out on the table. Ooh, girl, you know, yesterday when they walked by, I was like, oh, Lord let's have part of that conversation and bring it out. Because too oftentimes I think we suffer in this silence and then that just leaves room for the enemy to attack and say, Ugh, look how you are. But, you- but
2: that thinking in that video, I want to characterize that in a very particular kind of way. That's worldly thinking. It is. That's, that's worldly thinking. That is not thinking that is becoming of a child of God.
1: That Which is, is why we can't allow this mindset to enter into the
2: church. We can't baptize that in Jesus name and start creating rooms of for color for
1: people of color in our own churches. Yes, and that's I'm telling you one of those conferences that we we saw, we talked about a few months back, and I don't even remember the name of the conference now, but it was like it to me that was the Christian version of her comments. Exactly. Yeah. And that's wrong. Yeah. What, what, to me, what would be better is to get everybody in the room and be like, "Look, I know you think this about these people. I know you think that. Now, come on, let's let's all talk about this. We are all fallen. We all struggle with it." It's pride.
2: not that that the sin of racism doesn't touch people of color. That right? That it seems right? like they want a grand exemption to original sin. When you this this is what this clip approaches. Yeah, is I can't be racist. Because I'm a person of color, so I can therefore tell white
1: people, you're just occupying space. Yes. Racism doesn't touch me. I am not impacted by this sin, which is a mess all by itself because I am part of the fallen yeah. Adam. Now, I am also a part of the redeemed in Christ, yeah. but it's balancing that. And yes, I have a lot of pride. Yeah. And yes, you know, I show partiality. And yet we have the hope in Christ, but we can't allow this form of thinking and in the church create rooms solely for people of color so that they can feel safe. I can feel safe when we, the word says that we're all brothers and sisters. We don't
2: want to, we don't want to buy into that. We don't want to adopt or bring that thinking into the church, into the church is we're brothers and sisters in Christ that should be our primary mindset about each other. not oh, there's too many people of this certain ethnicity in the room. I don't feel safe. Can you, yeah,
1: no, you know, <laughs> I won't even use that example, but it it, it grieves my heart. like it yeah. makes me very sad because some something you said I think this morning is that we are actually taking steps away from unity. When it comes to to these sorts of matters, when we say, you know, we need a room for people of color, we're taking a step away from being unified instead of coming and confessing our sin one to another. Yeah. We're, we're hiding and saying, I can't deal with this. And this is too much. What if we all came together and said, you know what? I'm hurting. and you know, this is why I'm hurting yeah. and chose to find unity and healing and reconciliation and love within the members of the body.
2: Yeah. That's a good word. Okay. Well, we're gonna encourage our friends to send us some feedback about this discussion. I'm sure yeah. that they will have some thoughts and
1: Yes, I might have said something that was offensive. Please forgive me if I did. Um <laughs> or and- or not. Or not. <laughs> Depends on what it was. So yeah.
2: Yeah, I I yeah, but we do yeah. always enjoy hearing your feedback and how the, the discussions help you or what other questions
1: that they raise. Whatever so- thoughts they have. But I think if, there's, if there is any takeaway, it's that in this moment that would seek to silence the voice of the oppressor of um, white people, know that your voice does have value and there is worth in your voice and um, it's needed. Because my voice alone as a woman of color or people of color speaking out on behalf of whites, it's helpful, but we have to do it in unity.
2: Yeah, we all have to help each other yeah. for sure. And that it's okay to stand for ourselves and not just be called on taking up space.
1: Yeah, it's okay to stand for yourself. Yeah. And it's okay to stand for someone else because there's going to be a day when I need you to stand for me. That's right. Yeah.
2: All right, be sure to check out the show notes each week that we post there on our website at all the things show.com. You can check out the show notes we post there, extra links, or if you want to dive deeper into other videos or connected conversations, all of that is in the show notes for you. And also be sure to share the show with a friend and uh, support the show by following liking sharing commenting all of these things help our a- algorithms on social media so it's really important to have you interacting with our posts because that helps get the word out
1: also if you visit our website all the things all the things show.com you can sign up um and have the show notes emailed to you directly each week
2: yes yes And you'll get an alert once they're up there
1: Yeah. So. All right, my friends,
2: thank you so much for watching. And we do hope that you are enjoying the programs and check. We do thank you for checking out our content and all of your support and your prayers and your letters uh, just means so much to us yeah, to know Ton
1: of encouragement. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right, guys. Bye. See you next
2: week.